It's no secret that a vibrant organizational culture contributes to more employee engagement, innovation, productivity, and a more positive impact on everything you touch. But how do you know if you already have a vibrant organizational culture or what you need to fix in order to get one? Well, we're going to explore those questions and more with today's special guest. Stay tuned. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel Kelchner, helping you see business issues hiding in plain view that matter to your bottom line. Welcome to Business Confidential Now. I'm your host, Hannah Hassel Kelchner, and I've got a great guest for you today. He's Warren Coughlin. Warren helps principled entrepreneurs build a business that matters, one that delivers to you, the owner, attractive profits and a fulfilling lifestyle while also creating a positive impact on your customers, your team, and the community at large. Warren is also the founder and host of the podcast, The Business That Matters Spotlight. Let's bring him on now. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Warren. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Hannah. Nice to talk to you. It's good to have you. You know, I love this idea of creating a business that matters, one that has a positive impact on customers, team, and community. But I think being able to accomplish that really sounds like the intersection of business strategy and culture, because you need to have the right environment for your employees to deliver a positive impact on customers and those around them. And so I'd like to explore that with you. But before we do that, I'd also like your thoughts about organizational culture itself, because I get the feeling that a lot of business business leaders think you just start doing stuff. You just start doing business and culture springs up organically from that. So let's get into the nitty gritty a little bit. What, in your opinion, really is organizational culture? Okay, that's a big question to start off with. So you can you can look up lots of academic versions of that. I'll tell you my sort of practical definition of culture. My practical definition of culture, it is the systems, the incentives, and the informal signals that produce the behaviors that reveal the values of the organization. And I say that's a practical thing because often you hear things about culture as sort of the manifestation of values and all that kind of thing. But how do you, how do you actually influence that? And so this definition gives you the tools by which you can actually produce a culture. So simple example, if you say, for example, that we want to have a culture that values safety, but the only incentive you have for your project managers is that we're going to reward you based on productivity. And the only system we have in place for Foreman is to put a document in that measures productivity. Then when there's a snowy or rainy day outside and the conditions aren't safe, your systems and your incentives are going to encourage people to do things that are against what you say your primary value is, which is safety, because you're going to push for productivity. So the these tools of looking at each of them of systems, incentives, and informal signals tell you what behaviors you're in fact encouraging in the organization, and that behavior will reveal what the values are. And so then you can reverse engineer it and say, well, if we want to have these values, then we got to revisit those three elements. So is it one big thing or is it a collection of like microcultures, like at bigger organizations where there are decent sized departments? So, I mean, I play in the entrepreneurial environment. And so culture tends to be, when you say one big, I mean, there's a whole bunch of small things that go into producing that big thing, but the culture is a manifestation of how that organization works together through those three elements. In a larger organization, 
it can be very different. You can have regional differences in culture. You can have departmental differences in culture that are really driven by the leadership within that. Large organizations can create sort of a common big culture, but it requires a really <laughs> a really high level of intentionality. Like you got to have people who are committed to producing that culture and you need performance management systems around that and you need training around that. But it can be done at a large level as well. Interesting. In your experience, what are some common misunderstandings about a vibrant organizational culture or business culture in general? There's a lot of them. I mean, the, the first one would probably be that it's just values, right? That if you just articulate the values, then you'll be producing a culture. But that, of course, is kind of nonsense. Like Enron had fantastic values that were actually carved into the stone of their building, but they didn't live it. So it's not enough to just put up some values and think people will follow it. Another misconception is that some people go into turning values into performance management metrics way too soon and in way too a rigid way, and they think that they can kind of coerce culture through punitive measures, and that usually tends to backfire. The third is that, you know what, I hire good people, and so I just know the culture is going to stay good because it has been good, and so we really don't need to do much around that. But as an organization grows, the informality of the relationships that happen when you're a small level become harder to maintain, and it's really easy for the culture to be undermined. So even if you start with a great culture, as the organization grows, it's really easy for that culture to corrode. And so this, this sort of myth that, well, hey, we've started great, we're a great organization, we'll always be that way, is a dangerous thing to believe if you don't have a lot of like intentional thought behind this thing that you're trying to produce. You said something interesting a moment ago about metrics. Could you expand on that, please, about metrics and getting too rigid? Can you give me an example? So if you say, it's a good example. I just, I just saw one the other day that was kind of interesting. There was a value of humanity. That was one of the values they had. And so there was a certain kind of behavior about recognizing other members of the organization. And so they were trying to put in a metric that said, to meet your qualification of exceeds expectations, you have to have recognized someone else a minimum of three times. Now, that may sound good, but what that will has a danger of producing is a very mechanistic, I have to go recognize somebody, so I'm going to get my three recognitions out of the way quickly and then be done with it. And so it actually, your minimum becomes a maximum, and then it builds resentment because it's not really authentic. So culture is something you want people to live. Like when people do it that way, what they're sort of doing is saying, we're going to do our work. And then we have kind of culture over here to the side. And we want these values things. We want people to do it as like checkboxes. And that actually undermines the culture. You actually want the values to be lived really organically. And so you can have, you can have some metrics about employee satisfaction, about employee engagement and turnover, things like that. But if you try to turn very specific behaviors into very specific metrics as a way of producing culture, you're probably going to come up with something that's more robotic and, you know, mechanistic than something that's really organic and authentic. Yeah, I can see that. And I can see how you really miss the mark totally in doing that and, and undermining it. You know, I, I recently got a puppy and trying to train it, you know, housebreak it and so forth. And it's like the puppy has four paws on the paper, but it still misses the edge of the paper. So that's kind of <laughs> what this reminds me of, you know, like, oh, I checked all four paws are on there. Check, check, check. So 
anyhow, um, there's a really there's a really tragic example of this. There was yeah. a hospital. They were concerned about how long it was taking to move patients from the emergency medical services vehicles through triage. And so they tried to put minimum times to move people through or maximum times rather to move people through triage. And so they put really kind of draconian compensation consequences if those triage metrics weren't met. What happened as a result of that, so you could see, you could see that what they were trying to do was noble, right? They were trying to build a culture of attention to patients and move people through efficiently so they could get better care. The way they used it, the metrics they used and the compensation measures they used caused the nurses to say, we're not letting patients off the vehicles until we know we can move them through within those timeframes. And the consequence was people died. Like ambulances were sort of lined up outside the hospital because they couldn't offload their patients, which means there weren't enough ambulances out on the road and people weren't actually getting the care they needed as quickly as they wanted. So it was like a good objective with a metric that made sense, but the incentives they put in place were so awful that they actually undermined the very objective they were setting out to do. Wow, that is tragic. So mm-hmm. let me ask you this, though. If you've got a business and you want to create you know, really vibrant business culture because you know there's all kinds of good things that come from it. How do you go about examining your culture? Where do you start? So you so there's a few places to start. I actually I've created a culture analysis canvas that helps with this, but you actually go through and do a pretty detailed analysis of just how you behave in the organization. How do you make decisions? How do you run your meetings? What behaviors do we recognize? What behaviors do we punish? How do we share feedback? Looking at your systems and using the example I gave before, if you have a system that produces things about, you know, productivity, when you say you value safety, you've got to examine that. If you say we're about customer service, but it's all about speed is, is what your systems are trying to promote. You know, for instance, you, you see this a lot in call centers. People want, you know, you're even asked, how was our call today? But when they're, when the incentive and the system built for the call center is to get either a number of calls a day or a limited amount of time per call, what happens is you don't actually get resolution. And so the the customer winds up having to get on three calls in order to get their answer resolved. And so you wind up with this negative customer satisfaction on what is meant to be a customer service system. And so the system, again, kills your value because it's actually built on efficiency and productivity, not on customer experience. You got to look at your systems and say, what values are we really showing? Like, what are we prioritizing with the way these systems are done? And then your incentives. And then there's a concept called psychological safety. Like, is this a safe place to make mistakes? Do people support each other? Is it a safe place to give ideas? And when you do all that analysis, what will happen is you'll see the values that are actually lived rather than what's stated. Because it's easy to say we're all about this great stuff. But when you actually look how people behave, how they make decisions, and what behaviors your systems produce, then you can say, oh, this is what we're actually valuing. And then you have to say, is that what we want to value? Do those values produce the behaviors we want? And if not, then you got to revisit those things. you got to get clear on the values, share those values, share the behaviors with people, and then make sure your system's incentives are aligned. And when I say, I think I said the term earlier, informal signals, that's sort of like who gets to go to the golf game with the president? Who gets to invited to lunch? Who gets to go to the good client? Those things that you can say, you know, our performance management system says it's all about X, Y, and Z, but the person who's a sycophant who, you know, sucks up to the president gets the best work. Those kinds of informal signals, 
communicate to the staff more than probably anything else what's really valued. And so you got to be, again, very intentional about what you're signaling. I had a client once that they did great work on their values, like really, really detailed, spectacular work and aligned a lot of their systems. But they had a problem. They had this one salesperson who was responsible for a huge amount of the sales, but was a disaster culturally, like was really disruptive. You'll read in the literature, people will say, if someone doesn't align with the culture, you know, fire them right away. But even the people who are negatively affected by this person went, well, this person's responsible for like 25% of the sales in the company. If she goes, then like people lose their jobs. And so there was this really interesting conversation because they acknowledged basically we're signaling that money is more important than our culture because we're letting this person still do this stuff. And so the solution we came up with was, and they they didn't like the idea at first because it was going to cost them money, but it wound up saving a bunch of money. We actually hired someone to act as sort of a, an executive assistant, for lack of a better term, for that salesperson. And the salesperson was not allowed to go deal with the other staff. All that person's communications had to go through the executive assistant. So what happened, right? So that, what did that signal now? So the first thing was we were signaling that compensate, that you know money is more important than culture. Now the company was putting money to help put a barrier between a negative cultural influence and the staff while preserving the revenue that that person would come in. And that signaled that this is a person, that this is an organization that's really dedicated to the values, to success, and to the preservation of everybody's jobs. And that company then, they won best place to work in their category in many years running since then. So the, the what you signal becomes super important. Like that shift, it really, it said to everybody, oh, they're serious about this now. And it really aligned a lot of values about loyalty. Interesting. So, yeah, that was a great, a great story. Well, <laughs> I, you I know, very excited when it happened. <laughs> I think everybody at some point in their career has experienced a situation where, you know, the words on the mission statement say one thing, but the behaviors and the norms that are being accepted in the company are something else. And mm-hmm. it, it could cause kind of, you know, this disintermediation and even causing you to question your own values as far as, is this a place I want to work? Can I continue? Well, how can I make a difference here? So it's interesting. And it can happen really, it's like the boiling frog, Yeah, right? Like it's just one little thing happens, then another little thing happens, and you're working really hard all day. Like it's, I'm very sympathetic to the entrepreneurs who experience it. They're busy, they're trying to keep everybody employed, they're trying to service their clients, and it's like one little thing happens, and oh, it's not a big deal. And then another little thing happens, and it's not a big deal. And before you know it, all of a sudden the culture's just drifted away from what you thought it was. And that when that happens by surprise, it's really, it's kind of sad. And then you've got to get really intentional. So I always try to encourage people to be super thoughtful about it and really intentional from as early on as you can. And then protect that culture like you're protecting your life. Because when you can do that, then that will give you a competitive advantage in the labor market, in the customer market. It'll make you more efficient. Absolutely. But you know, for an organization that inadvertently, right, it happens, like you said, People discount these small behaviors. Well, you know, we're making an exception for so-and-so because, well, they've got great sales accounts. They're bringing in all this revenue. The customers love them or whatever their specialty is. You know, it doesn't have to be sales. It could be marketing. It could be finance. It could be a Mm -hmm. lot of things. But, you know, once things have drifted from where a business owner says, this is really what I want to be. This is what I want my legacy to be. This is what we want the business to really stand for. 
And you need to make take those steps like you described, you know, somebody taking a cold, hard look at, at all the systems and all these different components. How do you make that change when the employees, how do the employees trust management at that point when they've allowed this stuff to drift so far? That's a great question. And I won't say it's easy because it's not. One of the hardest things that I've experienced with, and this is about a whole bunch of things with entrepreneurs. One of the things about entrepreneurs is they're creative and they're always thinking of new ideas. And so there's a joke I, <laughs> I sort of observe a lot with, with entrepreneurs. You try to introduce something new into the organization and everybody just sort of puts their heads down and ignores it, thinking it's going to go away like the last 73 other new initiatives that were introduced and let die. Right. <laughs> and so when you, when you talk about a new cultural thing, that's the first thing that'll happen is people will go, yeah, yeah, right. And so you have to have patience with it to begin with. I usually say, if you build things around, I work a lot off 90-day planning. And so when you do things in your, fir your first 90 days, there'll be cynicism. But if in the second 90 days you continue with it, then people are like, oh, this isn't like all those other things that just dropped off the table. They're serious about this one. So that's one piece. The second piece is to be really candid. Like I think some entrepreneurs feel it's like it's an unsavory sort of vulnerability to admit that you made a mistake. But I think your people appreciate it. If you actually said, you know what, three years ago, we had a culture like this. COVID happened, all these things happened, and our culture got away from us. And candidly, I took my eye off it because I was concerned about keeping jobs and servicing clients. And that's my bad. And I want to get us back to the culture we had or moves forward to a culture that's going to help us achieve our purpose in a stronger way. And because I've seen that just relying only on me for that is dangerous. I want to enroll you. I want you guys to help both define that culture and help preserve it. And so these are the steps we're going to take to get there. And then if you have that kind of vulnerability, talk about it, build the values, build the behaviors, and then really build in rituals and practices so that everyone sees that the values are being preserved, that you, you, you reward people on values, give criticism best based on values, your performance managed to values. You know, you take jobs and don't take jobs based on values. When people start to see that this is a central feature of your decision-making, then over time, you'll start to shift it. Now, the hard piece in this, because when you've had this kind of cynicism and things that have happened over time, there will You'll hear sometimes people in this cultural world talk like everything is peachy keen and all you have to do it, everyone will sing kumbaya and come along with it. And that isn't how it happens. There will be people who won't want to go along for the ride. And one of the strongest things you can do to build your culture is someone who is not culturally aligned. You exit them to go find a place where they are aligned. And when that happens, people will start to see that, oh, okay, this, we're serious about this. And the irony is the people who care about the culture, when you make that move, they will be highly appreciative. I don't say that do right away. Like you want to try to work with people to bring them into the culture. But if it's clear the person is a cultural misfit, move them on. And the rest of the team will be like, wow, about time. And I'm so glad because now we're more a unified unit. I had a client just did that two months ago. And the transformation in the culture since this one sort of poisonous person left has just been incredibly dramatic. I can imagine it's because the thing is the people know who the non-contributors are, who's not pulling their weight, who's being a bully, oh, yeah. who's being toxic. And the one thing is, is that the business owner is going to not just be vulnerable because I love the script that you laid out here. I think that is just a really wonderful way to say, hey, I need your help and doing it in a way 
that doesn't show weakness, but if anything shows, hey, we're in this together. It's not just about me or you working for me. We're working with each other. But uh, to be willing to get the feedback because the folks that are on the front lines, they know what's happening. And they may have been trying to warn management and the business owner, and they don't want to hear it for one reason or another, because maybe the person that they're raising a red flag about is a relative or a close friend or a golfing buddy or something like that. And it's like, oh, no, that's the best friend of Bill's. You can't do that. You know, that kind of thing. So they're concerned. Yeah, that's the kind of signals things. Yeah, exactly. The signaling. And people may inadvertently be signaling and not realize it. So, oh, I just, I had a client just very recently. It was fascinating. We laid out and this cultural thing flowed out of a strategy piece. We were developing their strategic plan. We were, we laid it all out. I involved the whole executive team in its creation and we started rolling it out. And just before we rolled it out, there was like something weird in the conversation. And I went, what's going on? And one person spoke up and then all of a sudden the floodgates opened. And we had to change the entire strategic plan because all of a sudden, all this cultural stuff came out. And it was like so interesting that no one previously had had the courage to share concerns they had about the company until like an outsider like me came in and was sort of provoking some conversations about some clarity and discipline and decision making. And all of a sudden it emerged. And the, and the owners are great people, like really, really good people. And so it was sort of a shock to them that all this stuff came out because they thought that they were really open and welcoming, but they were, because of their desire to grow and to develop their product and all that kind of stuff, were signaling that they didn't want to hear that stuff and they just wanted to focus on business development. That wasn't in fact what they cared about. That's why this part of the conversation is so important. Your intentions don't matter if they're not being communicated. And just one other story on this, <laughs> I had a client that they were, they had just spectacular success. And the owners were the owner and the leadership team were deciding to have this big celebratory event. And this was maybe 10 years ago. And they were going to buy everybody in the firm. And there were like, I don't know, 50 employees. They're buying everybody brand new Apple watches. But here's what happened. They were going in and having these meetings that everybody could see they were going in and having these meetings. The culture started to deteriorate over this three-week period because everyone thought there was going to be a bloodbath. They thought all these all these leaders were having meetings because they were going to start cutting people. And they were planning a celebration of success for everyone. And yeah. I was like, holy smokes. Like, we're trying to do something really wonderful for our people because we appreciate and value them so much. And they think we're going to get rid of them. And it's like, you don't know how simple it is to signal the wrong thing. And one of the, th the things I think we are, as a species, genetically hardwired, that if a person in a position of power or authority, if their actions can be interpreted in two different ways, we will instinctively choose the least favorable interpretation. And I, so one yeah. of the real requirements for a leader is to be super clear. Yeah, you're right. And I, I believe that there's research to back that, you know, the sort of the decision-making bias that we innately have. And so communication is definitely, definitely super high on the list of every leadership skill that needs to be acquired and continuously learned because people don't realize how they signal. And especially when it's coming from a position of authority, that can be very, very scary because people have a lot riding on it, their livelihoods, their families, you know, and, and everything that goes with it. You know, they're not 
They don't have passive income necessarily to uh, pick up the slack if they lose their jobs, especially if it's in a more senior position. So those are some great stories, Warren. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, my pleasure. Besides the communication issue, which is so key for being able to signal intentions and being aligned with the values, that the message that's going out is consistent with the value, are there other common mistakes that need to be avoided when somebody's trying to you know, get the wheels back on the train here with their culture and make it a vibrant organizational culture? Yeah. I mean, one of them is thinking that if you said it once, it's in a lot of entrepreneurs, they fear being redundant and repetitive, so they don't talk about it enough. And so they'll say it once and then let it drift. You have to really, really be consistent and constant and intentional about reinforcing that this is what we're about. Just assuming that people know is a terrible thing. Second one is, you know, there's a, the leader's lead, right? So if you're not consistent with the values, like if you're trying to get everybody else to follow the values and you're not following them yourself, that's going to be a problem. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make a mistake, but it does mean if you fail to live up to one of the values, you got to own it, like acknowledge it, share it, say, geez, I dropped the ball on that one. I did not live the value in that case. Another mistake, I think, and this is a harder one to kind of convey, it's, I use that kumbaya kind of example. Too many people think this culture value stuff is all touchy-feely. And it's not. You're going to know when you're really living the values when you have the hard conversations about it. When something goes wrong and you say, we didn't live our values there. And you hold it to a higher level. I had a conversation at a client's place one time and somebody was trying to use the values almost like a weapon, you know, and they were saying so-and-so didn't live that value. And I went, oh, interesting. And I pulled out their values. And it says, one of the values is to support each other when you say they are in need of support. You've got another value, which is to take ownership of the culture in the organization. So you, you're telling me that you observe them struggling with that and not succeeding. You didn't offer to support them, nor did you call out the fact that there was a values problem going on. So where were you on the values? And that conversation got really interesting really fast. I bet. <laughs> you know, and so there's how you like if you, you can live, you know, there's that old saying, right? Like nobody wants to be on the plane with with a pilot who lands successfully 95% of the time. You want to be really really consistent with this stuff and not just values are like ethics, right? They're easy when they're not challenged, when there's nothing hard, but they really show up when they're tough, when you have to have a hard conversation about it. And so if you experience your cultural conversations as all light, fluffy, yippee-ki-yay stuff, you're not deep enough. There should be some really, really hard conversations sometimes if your values are well chosen, because there should be some, some difficult conversations, like even that productivity versus safety. Jeez, it's been six days of snow. We're like three days behind on our targets. How do we balance this? The answer isn't always obvious. And so you've got to really struggle with what are our hierarchy of values? What are we willing to absorb in furtherance of those values? Are we willing to lose money in pursuit of our values? Are we willing to walk away from clients if it means living true to our values? Are we going to lose a skilled person if we're going to stay true to our values? Those are, that's like I say, it's a tough mistake to really get your head around. But the sign is if all the conversations are light and fluffy and not meaningful, you're not, you're not going deep enough. Got to dive deep. 
Mm-hmm. So, Warren, if there's one thing that's absolutely essential to building a vibrant organizational culture, one thing that's non-negotiable, what would it be? One non-negotiable thing. I think it would be, it's got to be consistency. Like the minute you signal that you're not committed to it is the minute everybody says it's bull. And so you have to be, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect at it. It doesn't mean every decision has to be right. What it means is that you are constantly demonstrating that your culture and your values are central to all your decision-making. If you continually show that, then you'll be inspiring other people to do the same. Very good. And the interesting thing, just one other, there's a sort of a philosophical thought on this too, which is one yeah. of the reasons I've, I'm, I'm committed to this kind of work, is that right now, you know, and this isn't a political conversation, it's sort of a social one, but there's a vacuum in ethical leadership. Like there's just very few places where people have conversations about their values, right? Like people are not as committed to faith-based institutions. You know, political leadership is not a great model of consistent moral leadership. And so where do people look to, to model and to learn how to make decisions, how to make values-based decisions? And there's there's not a lot of places. And so people are looking to their workplaces as a real sort of cultural center point. And so when you be a, when you run your business as a place that models that our decisions are informed by our values, you're actually giving other people both permission and skills to do that in their own lives. And I actually believe the more that organizations use this as a central decision-making tool, the more that that will spill out into people's personal lives. And that can only make, you know, our communities better. And then it isn't just about personal preferences and things. It's about what do we value and are we going to make hard self-sacrificing decisions for that? And if people build those muscles, I think, I think we as a society just win as a result. Definitely, because values do matter. If you don't have any values, then anything goes and it just, it's a, a downward spiral into chaos. So Warren, thank even you. If, but even when people have their value, like what happens a lot of people, sometimes they have values, but there's this thing, right? Like, well, it's just business and all, I let it go because of that. And it's really, I think our culture has just drifted in an unhealthy way to an ability to rationalize compromises on our values rather than engaging in the hard discipline of saying, no, I'm willing to sacrifice for my values instead of rationalize away from them. Well, that's a great point. You know, that's situational ethics, making exceptions for this, that, and the other. What point do you hit bottom and say, no, this is right and this is wrong and there's no gray here. We've hit a hard wall. This is a hard no. And, you know, if you don't stop here, where does it stop? So, yeah, I mean, there's so much here and I'm sure we could continue this conversation and I'd like to at some point, but for right now, I just like to thank you so much, Warren, for your time. This has been an interesting journey into getting a better understanding of how to create a vibrant organizational culture that can transform a company and to put it in your words, to create a business that matters. So if you're listening and you'd like more information about Warren's Business That Matters playbook or his podcast, The Business That Matters Spotlight, you can find that information in the show notes at businessconfidentialradio.com. And if you know someone who could benefit from today's interview, and I'm sure there's a lot of organizations, even volunteer organizations, because that's a whole nother conversation, please tell them about this podcast episode, share the link and leave a positive review. 
Thank you for listening to Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Have a great day and an even better, more vibrant cultural day tomorrow.